Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. in 1 Samuel 25, picking up right where we left off last week. Uh, then Samuel died, and the Israelites gathered together and targeted and lamented for him and buried him at his home in Ramah. And David arose and went down to the wilderness of Paran. You know, this is a weird thing because we're in 1 Samuel and there's still 2 Samuel. And you'd think, why do they call these books Samuel? Because he just died. In, in chapter 25 of our first book. And, you know, as, as you're thinking about that a little bit, like consider the idea that First and Second Samuel are really the story of David and Saul and just the end of the judges all the way into the, the establishment of the kingdom of David and the Davidic covenant, the eternal covenant that God makes with David, which is coming up down the road here. So why don't they call these First and Second David? And, and they could have, they may have, and I think there's something really special about the fact that David and Saul were both discipled by Samuel. And so you see the story of Samuel from childhood, but then you also see the spiritual impact of Samuel's life. And though Samuel was kind of a failure, and some people have compared that to Obi-Wan mistraining Anakin, and then he gets a second shot to work with David, and he raises up you know, Luke Skywalker... Um, who's a different kind of king and who is able to overcome some of the temptations. Um, thank you for that metaphor. Um, the impact of this, the saga of, that we're dealing with, is really Samuel's spiritual heritage and what he's blessed Israel with. And he blessed them with a healthy king that could lead Israel into actually establishing a kingdom, a throne that could be sat on by the Messiah later down the road. So Samuel has served since he was a little boy. Remember, his mom made him little ephods, little robes. So he's been serving his whole life, and it's a life well-lived. And largely speaking, Samuel doesn't make, he doesn't trip up on sin. He's lived a righteous and a holy life. And this one-sentence ending isn't really a commemoration, but all of Israel gathers together and laments for him. So it was, throughout his ministry, he wasn't always loved. Like, we've seen Samuel be on the, the bad side of the Israelites, too. But at the end of the day, even those that were his enemies in life, when he dies, he's, they all respect and regard this guy. And the influence he's had, the ministry he's had, love him or, or not love him, uh, there's a respect for Samuel that all of Israel has. His discipline, his influence, and how he's led the nation. So in, in, in literally verse 1, the two characters are... I mean, you could put a dot, dot, dot there, and it says, then Samuel died, and David arose. So there's a transition here between Samuel and David now being almost the king of the nation, but also providing some spiritual leadership. So there'll be other prophets that rise to advise David, uh, but David is now arising. And last week, we looked at him getting training, and this week, we're at a really interesting moment. The first thing that happens after David arose is he gets tempted with sin. And he happens to be out in the wilderness when he gets tempted by sin, a lot like Jesus. Only he, doesn't, he isn't able to overcome sin. 
God has to bring somebody else into his life to do it. So that's the story this week is really the story of, this, uh, of, of David's future wife, Abigail. So we get to talk about romance, wooing the guy, the guy wooing the girl, all that stuff tonight. And you may think to yourself, wait a second, David's married. This is unsavory. You got to go to the very last verse of the chapter where kindly enough they added in, oh yeah, Saul had already given away his wife. So his first wife has been given away to another man. The covenant was broken there. David's actually in this chapter, and, and just so you don't get too worked up at the beginning of the chapter, he's actually a single guy at this point when he goes into it. But he still falls into the temptation of polygamy. Skip to the end of the chapter and you can see that. Now there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel, and the man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. This is how they defined wealth in the, in the pre-Jesus. Pre and he was shearing his sheep in Carmel. And the name of the man was Nabal. And the name of his wife was Abigail. And she was a woman of good understanding. I just like how, like, when they're introducing a female, like, we saw this with Sarah too, but you know what makes her wonderful? She's a woman of good understanding. That's, like, biblically, that's something that's important uh, for for a woman to be somebody that we regard. So she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, but the man was harsh and evil in his doings. He was of the house of Caleb. This is an interesting introduction. Carmel here is not Mount Carmel. It's actually a town in southern Israel. It's in the Judean foothills. It sets up a story for David's character and growth. Nabal has lots of money but no character. And he's a fool. Literally, the name Nabal means fool. And we'll see that later in the chapter. So imagine, like, if you're a parent and you name your kid fool, what do you think your kid's going to grow up to be? You know, like, what does that look like? Or he just got this name because that's what he was called. And so that's how he's recorded. Remember, David probably had some say in how these scrolls were gathered together later on. So, you know, this is the guy who, is a, who foolishly underestimated his awesome wife. And to his own demise, literally. Abigail, her name means father, my father is Joy. And, and then both of them are noted as in the house of Caleb. If you remember Caleb, he was one of the spies that said, let's go attack and take the land under Moses. So when they took the land, Caleb was the first person to walk up and claim his inheritance. So there's a really good reputation in this family. Um, and we see that his descendants have become really, really wealthy. And, you know, with Caleb, he's kind of like a no-nonsense guy that dog was like a faithful, loyal dog. And now the dog seems to be like more of a stray dog. Literally, literally, they are in, they're outside of their territory. They make note of the fact that he's from Mayon, but he'd gone to Carmel. He's literally a stray dog. Like he's outside of his home and he's not in his own territory. So we have, even in verses two through three, we have a chiastic form. It's Caleb, Abigail, Abigail, Caleb. And right in the middle of that, she was a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. This is definitely an introduction to Abigail, not an introduction to, to, to uh, Nabal. So Abigail becomes the center of this chapter in this, this narrative. She's a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance. To be noted as beautiful in the Bible is super rare. There's only three women in the Bible that are called pretty or beautiful. And, and it doesn't necessarily mean, and here it's beautiful appearance. The only other two women are Genesis 29, Rachel was called beautiful. And in, in, in the book of Esther, Esther is called beautiful. And they're called beautiful because that's part of the story. It's part of the narrative. It's part of what catches the attention. 
Uh, we have other women in the Bible. Deborah was not called beautiful, but she was wise and she was strong and she helped to lead Israel. So we have these characters. But in this particular case, the fact that she is beautiful is part of what catches David's eye. And there's a cue here. When we see this introduction and she's a woman of good understanding and beautiful appearance, that's a way for the writer to tell us we should pay attention to this woman. Like, ladies, if you want to know what a strong woman looks like, study this chapter. Take note. She's of good understanding. So as a reader, we should be thinking, okay, what does that mean that she's of good understanding? What does it look like to be a strong woman in a biblical sense? And I tried to do my research this week because this is an awkward chapter for a guy to teach. Like, I'm going to sit here and tell you what womanhood is. So I tried to interview all the women I encountered all week, which got irritating for some of you. Um, but, like, honestly, this is one of those kinds of things where, like, what does it look like to be a strong woman? And what does a strong woman look like in a biblical sense? I'm going to do my darndest to explain this, but I will screw it up and I will put my foot in my mouth because I'm born to do that on this particular topic. And my wife will just laugh at me. So when we get done, let's bring it up and you can correct any errors I make and I will humbly accept that. Um, we are in a culture that is ultimately trying to erase womanhood. But don't worry, ladies. It's trying to erase manhood, too. God created men and women, and he created them extremely different, biologically different, psychologically different, emotionally different. Communication aspects are different. So you've got God creating two different creatures that are meant to come together and be one. And we're designed that way. So when you have that kind of design, it, makes, it shouldn't surprise us that the world doesn't like to amplify the differences between men and women. And they were made equal but different. So the idea of us being equally valuable in God's eyes, absolutely true. Do we have different roles in God's eyes? Absolutely true. And that's a really difficult concept. And, and our entire culture resists that. Even within the church, that idea of roles being different but character and value being equal is a tough concept. And I'm guessing in this room we have very different opinions on this topic. On that note, this is all my cautionary stuff, it's perfectly okay for us to disagree on some things. And I hope we get that as a fellowship. Like, let's, we can talk about these things and still both be on our way to heaven. Um, and that's okay, right? And, and, and so I'll present at least what I see in the chapter, but be taking your notes and let's be ready to talk about it. And we will all be better people if we hear those thoughts and those opinions. Fair enough? Okay. So essentially, we've got a foolish man and a wise woman, a beauty and a beast. Um, th th this happened a lot in the ancient world because they got arranged marriages at age 15, right? Is you're going to marry people at age 15, by the time they're 30, they might be very different people. And so this is actually fairly common that you find a godly woman married to a ridiculously stupid man or vice versa. You had a godly man married to a woman like, you know, you get the narrative of Hosea and he was married to a, a woman that was promiscuous and, and so you have those situations too. But she sticks out because she honors the household despite the fact that her husband's a fool. Literally, he's a fool. Nabal is the word fool. So here we go. When David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, verse 4, uh, the harvest is come. The shearing of the sheep is like harvest season for, for somebody that has sheep. It takes days. It's not fun. They don't have electric clippers to shave those sheep. They literally have to go in with a scissors and cut these sheep. So one person has to sit on the sheep's head to keep it still. Another person has to get the fur off or the wool off as quick as it can. Once that wool's off, they have huge bundles of wool, and there's tons of money to go around, and they call the flock. So you take about 
10, 20% of the flock of your older sheep and you either eat them or you just kill them for sacrifice, right? Or the, the um, you're going to take a, a few of your sheep out and thin the flock down to keep it healthy. So this would take days, even weeks in the ancient world, and it was a miserable piece of work. It, you didn't look forward to this because it was loud. You got kicked. If you've ever watched, what's the name of the farmer guy's show? Clarkson's Farm. He has scenes with sheep, and you can see him trying to share it. He gets kicked in bad places. I mean, it's not fun work. Sheep like to butt you in the head, and they're, especially when you're trying to pin them down. They don't like that, um, and they're ornery little suckers. So um, it's shearing season. David hears about that. Verse 5, David sent 10 young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name, and thus you shall say to him when he, when, who lives in prosperity, Peace be to you, peace be to your house, peace be to all that you have. And now I've heard that you have shearers and your shepherds were with us and we did not hurt them, nor was there anything missing from you all the while they were in Carmel. Ask your young men and they'll tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes for we come on a feast day. Please give us whatever comes to your hand, to your servants and to your son, David. So when David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in the name of David, and they waited. We see from David, like, basically this sounds like extortion at some level. Like, hey, you owe us some resources here. Um, I'd encourage you not to read it that way, in part because there's a few indicators here that David's trying to be gracious with how he makes this request. One, he only sends 10 young men. First of all, if there's going to be any gift that goes back to David's crew, it's going to take about 10 people to haul all that stuff back. And 10 people's not a threatening force. Like any given household will have 10 young men that can defend themselves. David has 600 soldiers with him. Uh, to, so to only send 10 people is kind of an envoy or an entourage that he sends. He says to greet them. In verse 6, he compliments him. And then he gives him three different pieces. Peace to you, peace to your house, peace to all of your things. I'm not here to bring conflict or strife. So, and, and another indication of that's there. But then he lays out the fact that he's provided a service for Nabal. And in verse 8, he encourages him to ask and confirm that. So ask your young men. So what happens is these shepherds come out into an area. And in the ancient world, they could have bandits, they could have lions, they could have other things attacking. You could just have a pack of wild dogs that goes after your flock. So it takes a group of people to kind of protect and guard the sheep. And so David, basically, these young men come, and they hang out with David, which is going to get confirmed later in the chapter, and David is able to provide a night and day guard service for these shepherds. And it, likely the shepherd said, if you help take care of us, our master will reward you in due time. And David's like, you're Israelites, of course I'm going to help protect you. Where I'm at, there's going to be peace. So David provides that, he wishes that on them, and, and he basically says, confirm what I'm saying, that we did provide you a service, and he comes on a feast day, verse 9. So this is a day of, even today in the Middle East, when you're on a feast day, it's supposed to be a day of generosity. Like, we have abundance, we got thousands of sheep, we just killed about 100 of them. There's plenty of meat to go around. There's plenty of resources to go around. There's plenty of wool to go around. So that's the time when you pay your shepherds and you pay all the people that have worked for you throughout the year. So it's like your annual income. And it's supposed to be when you give your first fruits. So you're supposed to take your first fruits and give them to God, and then you pay off all your worker with the next round and you keep whatever's left over. 
And this is just how he operated. So Nabal is going to hear that request saying, we provided you services for the whole season. Your shepherds were with us, that we gave them protection. And then at the very end, the men wait. They don't make demands. Give us whatever you can afford or whatever you feel like you should give us, whatever it was worth to you. And to some extent, David's like, we'll be content with whatever they offer, right? Just tell them we provided a service. We're happy to take whatever you want to offer on that. So he didn't say, here's how much. He didn't put pressure on them. And that the men just wait is putting them definitely in a, in a position of patience, like not presuming that they're more important than whatever Nabal has going on. And then Nabal answered David's servants and said, who's David? Who is the son of Jesse? Frankly, the fact that he says son of Jesse means he knows darn well who David is, right? But who's the son of Jesse? There are many servants nowadays who break away, each one from, their, from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shearers and give it to men who I do not know where they're from? So David's young men turned on their heels and went back. And they came and told him all these words. Nabal could have just said, here's one sheep, see you later, right? Which would have been pretty insulting. But to say, I'm giving you nothing is to not regard the generosity and the tradition of hospitality. He's rejecting him. And the reason he's giving is, you're just some person that's rebelling against the king. Now, we have the whole story. We know David's going to become king. But Nabal doesn't know this. He doesn't know David's going to be king. For all he knows, he's just some rebel out in the wilderness. Um, so by saying who is David, we already know from pre previous chapters that the entirety of Israel knows who David is. He's the guy who killed Goliath. He's been fighting the Philistines. The narrative of, of years of being on the run from Saul. The fact that he knows this and then he says the opposite is a rhetorical repudiation. And he's really just insulting David. It's not enough to just send these men walking away empty-handed. Nabal's going to actually put insult on top of that injury. So each one that breaks away from their master, later on in verse 14, you can see that this is interpreted by his own men as reviling David. So we should read it the same way. Like this is Nabal absolutely throwing insult at David. And then in the verse 11, shall I, he uses I or my seven times. <laughs> I, my stuff, my this, my that, that my meat that I've killed for my sheep. I guarantee you Nabal was out, not out slaughtering the sheep. He had men that did that for him. But it's amazing how a fool, it's all his stuff, it's all about him, perfectly about him in that sense. And it's me, 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 and everything's his. A godly man, everything's from God. Like we talked about this morning with, with Matthew and the, the rich man, right? Everything comes from God. None of it's mine. So the fact that my flock has grown and I've got prosperity and things went well and I, no bandits stole any of my sheep this year and Nabal's like, income has grown, that's a gift from God. So what does it hurt you to, get, to honor that and to do it? But for Nabal, it's all about him. He's done everything. So the men turn on their heels. That's a way of formally departing or walking away in disgust, right? It's an immediate 180 turnabout um, to walk away from this guy. Then in verse 13, they, the David, then David said to his men, every man gird on his sword. And every man girded on his sword. And David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went with David, and 200 stayed with the supplies. Now when you show up with 400 men, that's aggressive. 
When you show up with 10, that's kind of a communication. So coming back with 400, David sends an insult, or Nabal sends an insult, David hears it as an insult, and he's reacting like anybody else in the ancient world. I've been insulted, and my pride is, not. we will go to battle because my pride has been smeared. So David's acting in kind of an impulsive way here, which we haven't seen, really, from David. Um, but this is a deep insult, you know? He provided a service, probably got promises from the shepherds, and now he's being denied payment for it. So, like, this is a tough situation because, you know, this guy owes him money. So what are you going to do in that situation? David's like, guys, strap up the gear, let's get going. And they all buckle up, you know, and they get ready to go attack. And so we're going to have a battle. This would be the first time David attacked other Israelites, right? And this is right after. Didn't we just get done talking last week about the mercy of David and not touching Saul? But now he's ready to go get Nabal and do this situation. So it doesn't say in these verses what David's intention is, but later in the chapter he confesses his intention is to go kill Nabal and all the men of his household and take everything he owns. So you don't want to pay me proper, I'm just going to take everything. So that's what David confesses to later. Um, notice also here David does not consult of the Lord. Remember last chapter, like we noticed how he confessed, to, or he went and consulted of the Lord before he did anything, before he went to save Keilah. And now he's not consulting in the Lord at all. He's just ticked off, right? He got slapped, and he just doesn't know how to turn the other cheek in this situation. Now, one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife. When it says young man there in the Hebrew, that's probably a 5 to 10-year-old boy, somebody old enough to know the situation. And it only takes a 5 to 10-year-old boy to really recognize who's in charge in the household. He doesn't go to Nabal. He goes to Abigail. That says something about Abigail's authority in that house. It says something about her wisdom and the degree to which even five to ten-year-old boys recognize she's the one you go to when there's a real problem happening, right? Nabal's a fool. She's wise. That's what everybody understands. He ignores Nabal, goes to her. So he goes up to, Nabal, to Abigail, Nabal's wife, saying, look, you got to pay attention to this, Abigail. David sent messengers from the wilderness to greet our master, and he reviled them. But the men were very good to us, and we were not hurt, nor did we miss anything as long as we accompanied them when we were in their fields. So one of the things you would give to a young boy is you'd put him on shepherd duty. It was the lowest duty that you would have. Remember, David used to be a shepherd as the youngest son. He had that duty at one point. So this guy goes up and he tells the truth to Abigail. Remember, David's men told Nabal to ask the shepherds about the service. So this guy's witnessing and bearing witness, David did exactly what he said he'd do. And now we're not honoring that. This is a really bad situation. So the idea of urgency is there with the word look. David sends them. There's no need to explain who David was here. Apparently that it's assumed that Abigail knows who David is. Look, David sent messengers. He's not having to explain who David is. Everybody knows, right? Nabal doesn't, apparently, but he does went to greet our master, which is to extol or congratulate. So he was friendly and honest in the, in the phrase there. He went to greet our master. He did everything right. I mean, even Saul admitted that David was going to be king in the last chapter in front of all his men. So this idea that even the knowledge that David was next in line for the kingship was pretty well known in the land. So saying that he's very, he was very good to us, he confirms all of the services of David's men. He goes through and lists the same three that David's men list. 
and that we accompanied them gets added. So the young boy adds a little detail here. We accompanied them. It wasn't that they tagged along with the shepherds. The shepherds went to them and asked for the help. Okay, that changes a little. That should, that should open up the situation. And then the little boy adds this. And he didn't need to do this, but he's trying to emphasize to Abigail, like David and his men were really good to us. Verse 16, they were a wall to us both day and night, by, both by day and, and both by night and day, all the time we were with them keeping the sheep. Now therefore know and consider what you'll do, for harm is determined against our master and against all his household, for he is such a scoundrel that one cannot speak to him. This is why the boy went to Abigail. When you get hyper-masculine, foolish men, it's hard to talk to them. And my wife sometimes says, Sean, sometimes you're really hard to talk to. But the idea that you get somebody that's just, they're bullheaded and they think they know everything and they never just break in humility ever, it blinds them. Because the, even the, the 10-year-old boy knows enough to not even try with Nabal. So he, being a fool has this residual effect of, as a fool, you don't get the same information that, that wise people do. So you're actually not equipped with the same stuff to make good decisions because you would, you'd waste it if you had it. So the idea that David was a wall to them, active protection, he is, he is such a scoundrel. In the Hebrew, that actually means son of Belial. Like, he's a son of the devil. So this tells us that Nabal was maybe worse than a fool. Like, there's something really horrible about this guy. He's unapologetically, he's evil, he's open to sin. He's, he's actually on the wrong side of God when he says the word scoundrel there. What do you do if you're a wife of a man that's that evil? How do you deal with that kind of situation? What do you do? In that? And so this is kind of an, an interesting situation as we see the personality unfold of Nabal. He's godless, he curses his house, He's putting his whole house in danger. What does a good wife do when her husband's a fool? And how does she act? I think this is a great text because you get people on both sides of the, the female role in the household. And I think you got people that are extreme on both sides where there's no difference between men and women, which isn't biblical. And then this idea that women should always be passive, which is nowhere in the Bible. They should submit, but there's, we take the word submit as weak. And as we've, that word's been warped in our culture, right? But there's nothing weak about Abigail. Pay attention to how she acts here as a, sub, as a wife submitting to her husband, but actually taking charge of the situation. Like she has a leadership role here that she takes on. So the problem here is that Nabal's sin is actually going to hurt the whole household. It's one thing when your sin hurts yourself. It's another thing when there's people that are going to get killed because the scoundrel, foolish son of Belial doesn't know what he's doing. So Abigail takes a page from Jacob in this situation. Jacob, when he, saw, when he was coming to meet Esau, you remember this? And before he meets Esau, he sends out like gifts ahead. And he's, you know, it sends out like his family and sends out all these people to warm Esau up. And by the time he meets Esau, they're like, they're hugging, they're back together as brothers. And they realize that in the sense that Ab Abigail uses this strategy, I get the sense that Abigail had read the Word of God. She had read Genesis. She knew this tactic because she'd read it somewhere. Or she's just really wise, as the text says. So verse 18, then Abigail made haste. She did not go to her husband for permission. 
She made haste and took 200 loaves of bread, two skins of wine, five sheep already dressed, which means, you know, food, and five sias of roasted grain, 100 clusters of raisins, and 200 cakes of figs, and loaded them on donkeys. That's enough to feed 600 people and their families. Like, she's bringing a feast over there for them. Probably more than what a normal payment would have been. And she said to her servants, verse 19, go on and before me, See, I'm going to come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. The text makes a point that she did not involve Nabal in this decision. So not only does she have leadership, but she has control of the household to where she's managing the resources. And she's able to make a gift like this without question. And she didn't stack up 200 fig cakes on her own. She has all the servants of the household moving and shaking right now while Nabal's in his quarters doing who knows what. So she's running the household. And she's organizing it. And we see that example of leadership here. The bread, wine, sheep, grain, raisins, figs, donkeys. One way to read this is all of these have spiritual connotations. Bread has always represented the word of God. Wine represents the blood of the sacrifice. Sheep are the actual sacrifice. Grain is representative of the harvest. Then you get to raisins and figs, which are abundance or blessings over the top. You don't need those things. And of course, donkeys have always been associated with work and with wealthy people. So she gives the word, the blood, the sacrifice, the harvest, blessings, abundance, work, and wealth. And she just pours out all that blessing on David and lines it all up. If a fool of a husband denies the king what belongs to him, a wise wife will make sure that gets given. This is a really hard teaching sometimes because these situations can be bad. But outside of, um, of, of infidelity or abuse, like you may have a husband who doesn't want to go to church, yet that's what God's asked of everyone. So a wise woman gets herself out of bed on a Sunday morning and goes to church anyways. You don't need permission to do what you're supposed to do. And you don't need permission to give to the king what's due the king. So when she gets up and acts and does this accordingly, she does it without Nabal's permission, we see a wife that's protecting the household and guarding over it. There's a nurturing, a generosity, a wisdom. She knows God's word. She uses it in practice. And this is what a wise woman is. This is what a strong woman looks like. Unbelieving husbands don't necessarily want to do what they need to do in the kingdom. A believing wife should do it anyways. And I think that works in the flip too, by the way. Like, if you've got an unbelieving wife, guys, that don't want to serve the Lord, you can go to church without your wife. You don't need permission to do what God's asked you to do from your spouse. You do what God's asked you to do. Ultimately, and hopefully, all of us have marriages where the husband and wife are in concert in serving the Lord and how you're going to serve the Lord and how you're going to do that as a couple. Ideally, but this isn't the ideal situation. Verse 20, so it was... As she rode on the donkey, that she went down under the cover of the hill. So the servants are bringing all those rewards to David, and she's just watching from under the cover of the hill to see how David reacts. Like, is he going to slaughter all the messengers? Or how's he going to do this? And there, were, and there were David and his men coming down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain I've protected all that this fellow has in the wilderness so that nothing was missed of all that belongs to him, and he's repaid me evil for good. Same language as the last chapter with Saul. May God do so and more also to the enemies of David if I leave one male of all who belong to him by morning light. So 
Abigail's watching how all this happens. She sees that he kind of stops to look at all this stuff. She hops out from behind the rock and goes down the hill, and she's, she greets him. And we'll look at the greeting here in a second. We do see David, in these verses, we see David's intention to kill them all, right? My intention was, I, I'm not going to leave one male alive in this household, which means he's taken everything else. Um, this is sin, and we should note that. Just because David does something doesn't make it right. Um, so this sin would sully his reputation because David has done no wrong so far, and yet everyone, Saul has done wrong to him. But if he goes and slaughters an entire Israelite household, he's just a thug. Then he is an extortionist, right? Then he becomes the evil that Saul thinks he was. And now, justifiably, Saul would need to take this guy out because he's running around killing Israelites. So in doing this, David would wreck God's plans. But he's got a hot head right now. He's got a head full of steam. But there's a sin here. The sin's in Leviticus 6.2. Suppose one of you sins against an associate and is unfaithful to the Lord. Suppose you cheat in a deal involving a security deposit or you steal or commit fraud. In this case, Nabal's committed fraud. Nabal and his men that represent him. If you've sinned in any of these ways, you are guilty. You must give back whatever you stole or the money you took by extortion or the security deposit or the lost property you found. It goes on to say that in the cases of theft or in this kind of thing, not only do you give what's owed, but you're supposed to give 10% more because now we're in a courtroom, right? You inconvenience people, so there's an add-on to what you took. The just thing for David to do is go to Nabal and take his payment plus 10%. The just thing to do is to not slaughter the whole household. Theft does not result in killing the person under the law. So what David's doing here is he's adding to the law and he's about to commit a major sin. He's about to break one of the commandments. He still shows a little wisdom. We've seen a lot of vows so far. And in that vowing, we see people put themselves in a real bind. But notice how David makes a vow. In verse 22, it says, May God do so and more also to the enemies of David. So it isn't like, if this happens, then I vow to do this thing. He's like, if this happens, may God do whatever God's going to do. It's a different way to make a vow. But in this vow, David doesn't break a vow when God chooses to not do anything. However, we'll get to the end of the chapter. God does take care of this. Now, when Abigail saw David, she dismounted quickly from the donkey, fell on her face before David, and bowed to the ground. Abigail's a rich person's wife. She's got more money than David. Even today, rich people tend to put themselves over poor people. So the way she's acting is she's not presuming her position at all. She gets off her high horse. She falls on her face and bows to the ground. This dismounting and putting your neck out in front of somebody that has a sword on their waist, she's putting her life in David's hands. And that's physically and actually, but it's also spiritually. And in a communication way, she's saying, I'm at your mercy. So she puts herself in this position. So, and and, and she, she puts herself at the lowest of positions. We've seen this before. Um, she calls herself a maidservant in verse 24, which is the servant of a servant. So she's putting herself at the lowest possible role in a household. right? And so the way she presents herself to David is with total humility and total grace. And she does it without any pride or presumption. So she fell on, at his feet and said, on me, my Lord, on me let this iniquity be. 
kind of rhymes in the English, but uh, you know, essentially this is on my fault. If you need to kill somebody, kill me. Wow. And please let your maidservant speak in your ears and hear the words of your maidservant. Please let not my Lord regard this scoundrel Nabal, this son of Belial Nabal. Don't even regard this guy. Okay, she's talking about her husband here. Do you pick up on that? This is some people really critique Abigail because look at how she's talking about her husband. Is she lying about her husband? Like even the 10-year-old recognizes this is who her husband is. She's not lying about her husband. She's being very truthful and honest. And she's not saying anything that everybody doesn't already know. Right? My husband's a nut. You know that. But, of course, there might be people in the room who are like, you should never talk about your spouse in a negative way. when they're not. You know what I mean? So there's a way to read this, too, where it's like, okay, maybe she overstepped here a little bit. We'll talk about it afterwards. For as his, as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. He's a fool. Like, he's called a fool, and he is a fool. You've got to know that, David. But I, your maidservant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now, therefore, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, since the Lord has held you back from coming to bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hand. David's like, wait, he hasn't held me back yet. I'm like on the way over. But she's given him grace. She's assuming he's not going to do what he's setting out to do. I just love how she does that. That is really strategic use of the, the language she's speaking. Assuming you're not going to do this, David, right? You're not going to avenge yourself with your own hand. Now then let your enemies and those who seek harm for my Lord be as Nabal. Let them all be sons of Belial. Anybody who seeks to harm you, David, they don't get what God's doing in this country. On me, she takes full responsibility. As a sacrificial human being, Abigail represents exactly what godly people do. They lay their lives down for other people. It's not my life. It's my life's for you. And I give it up for the other people in the body. I give it up for my king. Like part of grace and godliness is to put yourself in the way of harm on behalf of your children and your family and the people around you, the people you love. And Abigail just models this in a really powerful way. David's fuming mad at Nabal, which is super easy to do. He's a fool. And when she puts herself in a self-denying way with the strength of heart that Abigail has, she lays herself at his feet. It's really hard to be mad at her. She's wise. She's beautiful. She's humble. She's gracious. She assumes the best of David, not the worst. Like, it's easy to be ticked off at the fool. It's really hard to be ticked off at this gracious woman. And I'm sure for a moment David is like, who is this? Like, this caught his attention. She's a godly woman. Look at this. Please let your maidservant speak. She doesn't even presume the ability to speak. Please, she asks, please let me speak. Right? Again, as a rich woman, she could come in and say, I am here to talk to you. And let me tell you, David. But she doesn't do any of that finger-pointing or accusation. Just, she honors David's title. She gives David a way out. She shows wisdom and humility. And frankly, don't miss the fact that this chapter is directly after David did all of that for Saul. Like David used all these strategies to get Saul to cool his head. And now she's using the same strategies on him. It's almost like David has met his match. And, he's, and, and we see this mirroring between the two chapters. But she's as wise and shrewd as David is. She's got a bright and a sharp mind. 
Nabal is his name, and she uses that. The Lord has held you back. She speaks like that's already done, and she speaks truth. My husband is a fool. That's not dishonoring to your husband if, in fact, he is a fool. And she's saving this man's life right now. And part of saving his life is to speak truth. Let's not speak the lies that my husband spoke. Nabal twisted the truth. Abigail speaks the truth. And there's a wisdom in doing that, right? He is folly. Don't be so brazen about what, what good does it do for the future king to kill an idiot? It just lowers you to his level. And, and there's an awareness of Abigail, but also a respect for her husband. And like, I'm still married to the guy. I'm still serving in the household. I'm still running the place. But let's be realistic. King David, it's not worth your time to kill scoundrel Nabal. Like, this just sullies your reputation. What good does this do you? If David kills Nabal in hate, Nabal actually then wins because he's ruined David's reputation. Even in death, it's not worth it to you, David. So Abigail basically reminds David of the law. And in doing, she does it so subtly. Let me read the law. Leviticus 19, 17. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall in any wise rebuke your neighbor, neighbor and do not suffer sin upon your neighbor. If he kills him, that's sin. That you shall not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people. You shouldn't do this to Israelites. But you should love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And the way she weaves that in, why would you avenge yourself? She uses that language. She reminds David of the law. Don't avenge yourself. Don't avenge yourself against other Israelites. Don't avenge yourself by sinning yourself, by doing more than what the just punishment is for the act. So the tone she uses, the mirroring to what he did with Saul, the wisdom, all she's doing right now is saving lives and protecting her family. This is a strong woman. Guys, take note. This is the kind of woman you want to marry. Like she knows how to, how to handle herself. The writer is showing her as David's absolute match. She would be a wonderful wife. The only problem is she's already married, so we don't want to mess with that. Be as Nabal. In, in other words, she's saying, if you need to kill Nabal, okay, but don't kill the whole household. Right? And let God do this for you. Let God kill my husband. If anybody's going to kill my husband, let it be God's work. So the goal here isn't to get David into a petty fight, but it's the enduring work of God. God's making you the king of Israel, David. Think about what God's called you to, not this immediate situation. If you trust God, he'll do his work. Nabal's just a speed bump to you, King David. Like, don't sin in this regard. My Lord fights the battles of the Lord. When she uses that, the my Lord she's referring to is not Nabal. She's calling David her Lord. You are the future king. You're going to be the king of this place. And I know you, David, fight the battles of the Lord. And she, she introduces God into the whole thing. The problem when you got a hot head and you're really angry, the last thing you want to hear about is God, right? You just want to get that vengeance and get that anger. And to have a, a gentle woman introduce the idea that this might not be what God's calling to you to. What a beautiful and gracious way to kind of handle that. He probably flickers for a moment and his rage just kind of blinks. He's like, oh yeah, God's involved here too, right? Stuff used to do this to me back when I was younger and more hot-headed. I'd be on my way on something and she would just say, well, have you prayed about it? And just this gentle, have you prayed about it? It's, sometimes I really didn't want to hear that. That was not the message I needed. But praise God for an awesome wife that could gen gently say, Sean, have you prayed about that? 
And the, the real answer is no, I haven't. You know, so at some point you're just like, maybe, of course I have. But at the end of the day, I need to go pray about it. When you introduce the Lord into a situation, the Lord reduces the anger. The Lord, the, the Lord can quell the, the feistiest of storms, including the ones we create. She gives him a breath to think before he acts. And I think that's something that a great wife will do for a husband. Gives him just the chance to think before he acts. And there's great wisdom in that. Evil is not found. That she uses that phrase, David, don't let evil be found in you. Nabal's full of it. He's the son of Belial. But don't let evil be in you because of him. Don't let him beat you. So weigh the action out. Take the high ground. Don't be the thug. And she's quick to do this. I don't know if you noticed, but she quickly got off her camel. She quickly got in front of him. She really introduced herself into the situation with intention. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life. I love how Abigail says this. She doesn't say Saul is pursuing you. She says a man. She's even giving respect to the king, just like David did in the last chapter, the current king. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life. But the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. That's a great way of when wealthy people would pack up all the wool at shearing season, they would bind it in a bundle. And so to be bound in a bundle with God's people is where we want to be bound. And she just uses poetic language to a guy who writes songs. Like, can you think of what this is doing to David's heart right now? Whoa, she, that's a great turn of phrase. I got to remember that for the song that I'm writing. She introduces poetic language to a guy who writes poems. Like he's fallen, like he's got to be going, holy moly, I think I'm falling in love with this married woman. Let my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. What's she doing there? She's reminding him of back when he was close to God. Remember the faith you had when you fought Goliath? Remember how easily that stone left the sling? That's how God takes care of people like my husband. That's what God will do with Nabal. It's nothing to God to take Nabal off the face of the earth like that. He could end Nabal with a breath. And that's how easy it is. A slinger, the idea of a sling is you hold on to two straps really, really tightly, but when you let go, that's when the attack happens. And what I think it's, so, it's beautiful language. Like This is almost like a psalm. The strength of God's people is when we let go. It's when we release. It's not when we cling and grasp. It's when we let go. And that's how God's going to handle this. It's going to be so easy and so quick. Verse 30, and it shall come to pass. Okay, it shall come to pass is the language of the prophets. It doesn't call Abigail a prophet, but she's using prophetic language here. She's predicting what will happen. Here's what's going to happen, David. And it's almost like she doesn't claim to be speaking for the Lord, but she's using wisdom to speak for what's, this is how God works because she knows her God, right? So, Guys, take note of this. When you meet a girl who actually pursues her faith and seeks the Lord God Almighty, pay attention. Like, wake up. That's one heck of a catch. And he shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and has appointed you ruler over Israel. She's acknowledging, David, you're going to be the king. I, I accept that and I acknowledge it. Verse 31, that this will be no grief to you. This is nothing to you. You're going to be the king of Israel. My husband is nothing. Nor offensive my heart to my Lord, either that you have shed blood without cause 
or that my Lord has avenged himself. Again, using the language that we read from Leviticus. But when, when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. When God has dealt with Nabal, please remember me. <laughs> if you gotta kill Nabal, if the, if the Lord's gonna take out Nabal, don't take out the whole household. There's people here that know you're gonna be king. We respect you as Lord. We honor you as the future king. Our shepherds did. The five to 10 year old boy does. You don't need to kill all of us. Like remember us and remember me. It's almost like she's making a move on him. Like remember me when my husband's dead. Like don't forget me. Interesting that she would do that. She has respect for the king. She's not using his name. This bound in the bundle idea is doing that. This shedding blood without cause, she's reminding him of the law once again. She's now pointed out God's law, God's will, and God's spirit. Here's what God thinks, here's what he's said, and here's what he's done. And here's what he will do gets added with these verses. So as David's about to slip into sin, she comes in and reminds him of God's word. This is what not only that we should do for believers as iron sharpens iron, this is what husbands and wives do for each other. They remind each other of what God's plan is. Deuteronomy 32, 43. Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants and render vengeance to his adversaries. He will provide atonement for his land and his people. He'll take care of it. You don't have to go after your enemies. You just need to trust that the Lord will take care of it. That the Lord, my Lord, has avenged himself. The same principle David uses with Saul, Abigail uses with David. Same idea. You don't have to do this. God's going to deal with your enemies. Deuteronomy 32, 35, vengeance is mine and recompense. This is God speaking. Their foot shall slip in due time and for that day of their calamity at hand and the things to, to come hasten upon them. Don't worry about fools. Don't worry about those that would attack the Lord God Almighty. They're going to get theirs. And we don't have to do that. We can just be people of love and grace. We don't have to fight those battles. So her easy application of the law shows intelligence. It shows the fact that she studied the Bible. She knows the law. And she has this deep respect for God. Again, I'm looking at this just as a guy reading the Bible going, yeah, those are great features in a, in a godly woman. And suddenly we're thinking this is like, you know, we should do a whole study on Proverbs 31. This is a Proverbs 31 woman. And Abigail just exemplifies it. Of course, that might be why Solomon wrote Proverbs and explained what this kind of woman looks like. He would have known Abigail. He would have known her character. Vengeance here then is justified for God, but it's not justified for humans. This is where we get the teaching, turn the other cheek. If your enemy strikes you, turn the other cheek and let him strike the other one. It's not your job to figure that out. So I just want to point out, because again, I think this is tough for people, and they often don't read the Bible and make conclusions about what the Bible says about men and women. But what we're seeing here is a woman who's not passive. She's not submissive to Nabal in our sense of the word submissive, but she's definitely respectful, humble. She gives difference to her husband and to David, but that doesn't mean silence or weakness or passivity. It actually means strength in acting with speed and confidence in the word of God when the moment arises, she's ready to act and do things. She's ready to take over because her husband's an idiot. And I, honestly, when you see Deborah and Barak, that's what I see in Deborah too. She's ready to take over and run things when her husband's not ready to do it. 
So she steps up and she does it. And there's nothing biblically here that says that Abigail does anything wrong. In fact, this is written in the context that she did everything right. This is what the Bible, what God sees as a godly woman. Strong, courageous, quick, ready to move, wise, intelligent, right? But she does it with grace and humility. There's this sweet correction that she gives. She gives sweet correction. And it's one of the beautiful things about how she can come in. The, 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 the strength of Abigail is that she's able to calm the beast. She's, able, she's been dealing with Nabal for years, and she handles David like, like he's simple compared to her husband. right? And she takes his anger and turns it into peace. She's a peacemaker. Remember your maidservant. She has so much faith that Nabal's in trouble right now that she aligns herself to King David and calls him my lord multiple times. She's already treating David as she would someone she's giving difference to. What a gift to have a woman like this give herself the service to your kingdom. So her appeal to David is built up, and she builds David up. She never tears him down. She never accuses him of anger and vengeance. She's not an accuser. She's a builder and an encourager. And she uses her wisdom to do things to honor David, not to shame him. Right? And this is ugly when you see wives that shame their husbands. It makes you want to cringe. Like you feel bad for the husband because they just get owned. Right? And the husband just turns into this little sheepish man because he's constantly being beaten down by his wife. Right? Just watch any sitcom from the 80s and you'll know what I'm talking about. Roseanne is the one I'm thinking of. Just this ongoing berating that can happen. We don't see any of that from Abigail or Sarah or Deborah. We don't see any of that from Esther. We see this grace that is as strong or stronger than anything else this world has to offer. It's amazing strength of character and beautiful at the same time. She predicts God will avenge David when the Lord has dealt with Nabal, and she hints that she's loyal to David. Like, she's so confident that this is going to happen. She's saying, like, remember me when it does. Remember I said this to you. Not only does David remember it, he writes it down, and it gets put in the Bible for us to learn from. Verse 32, Then David says to Abigail, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel. We're back to the old David, the David we know and love, who sent you this day to meet me. And blessed is your advice, and blessed are you, because you've kept me this day from coming to bloodshed and from avenging myself with my own hand. For indeed, as the Lord of God of Israel lives, who's kept me back from hurting you, unless you had hurried to come and meet me, surely by morning light no males would have been left to Nabal. Okay, ladies, when you meet a guy that's willing to repent and take his pride and throw it out the window, take note of that. Pay attention to that. Guys that can be strong like David but still humble themselves when they're wrong, Mm, don't miss that kind of guy in your life. That's impressive. Guys, you should try to be that kind of guy. This is kind of fun because I'm talking to a lot of single people right now. But husbands and wives, appreciate your husbands and wives for these virtues that they have. Maybe even thank them once in a while, you know? You know, thanks for being humble. Thanks for being ready to hear and ready to listen. So David turns on a dime. David matches her artful use of language. I don't know if you picked that up. But verses 32 through 34 are almost poetic. Like he almost is composing a song back to her. And in the Hebrew, this really stands out. But blessed is the Lord God of Israel who sent you to me this day. Blessed is your advice. Blessed are you because you've kept me this day from bloodshed. Like he's, he's got a cadence to what he's saying here. 
David sees clearly, and starting out with blessed is the Lord God of Israel, David recognizes what Abigail is. She's been sent from God. And sometimes in life we miss the fact that God intervenes when we're about to screw up. And David's wise enough to see that Abigail is absolutely the Lord's doing, and he gives God the glory right up front. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel. There's no other way around this. He admits he's wrong in front of his men, and he elevates this person who right now is bowing at his feet, but he elevates her and he praises her, and then verbally he lifts her up, right? So this is the kind of guy that doesn't just take that position that she has offered him, but he raises her up almost as his equal. Blessed are you. Blessed is your advice, right? Blessed are the things coming out of your mouth, and blessed are you as a person, right? So he... Instead of dominating, he elevates her and lifts her up and puts her on a pedestal in front of all his men. And he treats her in such a way where he's washing her with the, the blessings of God. And, and, I, and I see this just relationally speaking as just a beautiful moment between these two. You have kept me. David gives glory to God, but he gives full recognition to Abigail for her wisdom and her reason and the way in which she did it to settle him down and stop him from making a deep sin against the Lord. Lesser men get stubborn about stuff like this. Lesser men, when they get a head full of steam, you can't stop them. But a strong man is able to be weak, is able to be in a position where David doesn't lose respect by being a listener, and he doesn't lose respect by changing his mind. He actually gains credibility. He, once again, this story's in here because this is David arising, verse number one. David arose. This is David becoming the man God wanted him to be. And that person is able to admit when they're wrong and able to turn when they need to. This is tough to do because we always think we're right. Everybody does. So to be corrected, and he does it, Romans 12, 19, this goes right into the New Testament. Beloved, people that I love, don't avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I'll repay it, says the Lord. We see a principle being modeled by David that goes right into our New Testament. Are you upset about injustice? Has somebody lied about you or done wrong to you? Are you God's got it. Don't worry about it. Take all that anger, bundle it up, and lay it down at the feet of Jesus, and, and, and in your imagination, watch it burn up. God will take care of that situation. He won't let sins go unavenged. And we'll be there to see it. I, I think God will allow David to be a part of this whole thing. So God's stepping in with David. That's not a coincidence. And David recognizes it, and he sees that Abigail's being used by God. He names the sin, so he doesn't just repent. He actually says what he was about to do that was wrong. He turns from it. And, and, and though he's totally justified in taking what he's owed from Nabal, he even backs off from that because the anger is not justified, even if the situation is. Does that make I hope that makes sense. There's a spiritual level to this. This act would have made him a criminal, and now he's not a criminal. Boy, if you meet somebody that makes you a better man, if you meet somebody that makes you a better woman, that their counsel is the word of God coming into your heart, I think that you've got a gem on your hands. You've got somebody you want to keep in your life for a long time. I think this goes into friendship too. If you've got a friend that makes you a better person because you hang out with them, hang on to that friendship. It's precious. Cling to it. Verse 35, So David received her from her hand what she had brought, brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house, 
See, I've heeded your voice and respected your first. And he took the gift that she offered, and it's been dealt with. So he lets it be done. This meets the letter of the law in addition to getting rid of the wrath and the future sin that's there. There's a respect that David gets here. I want to point out here too in verse 35, um, I've heeded your voice and respected your person. I think that's how you talk to somebody who's not your wife, right? She's still married. And in the Jewish law, like there's that marriage is pretty sacred. So he just sends her back and says, I've heard your voice. You're an amazing woman and I have total respect for you. And there's nothing untoward here. Abigail and David do not have an affair, right? That's make-believe. What we see in the text is him showing her great respect as a man would respect a woman who's not his wife, right? And, and, we, and we also see that he's speaking to a woman that's not his wife. We get some cultures and traditions where men don't even talk to women. That's ridiculous, and it's not biblical. David talks to her. She's the head of this household at this moment, and she represents her household, and he honors her in that position, and he accepts the gift from her hand as though she were head of household because she's acting in that role because her husband's a fool. Now Abigail went to Nabal, and there he was, holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. So he throws an extra big feast. Now that he's slighted this David character, he's going to throw a huge feast for all his people. Again, he's a fool. I don't know how much we need to get into that. Nabal's heart was very merry within him. <laughs> For he was very drunk. Something we also see fools doing. Therefore she told him nothing, little or much, until morning. Again, showing wisdom. Don't try to talk to a drunk person if you've got to deal with deep, serious issues. Let him sleep it off. 37. So it was in the morning when the wine had gone from Nabal and his wife had told him these things that his heart died within him and he became like a stone. This is a way to describe like an epileptic heart attack. He literally, has, he hears what happened that he was all delighting in and she's like, I sent him food and took care of it. And he either gets so full of rage or so full of shame, his heart literally becomes like a stone and it stops up on him. It stops pumping blood. You don't necessarily die immediately from that kind of a heart attack. Um, but and it happens after about 10 days that the Lord struck Nabal. So he's bedridden, his heart isn't pumping correctly, and he eventually dies 10 days later. Literally the next morning, he has a heart attack. 10 days later, he's dead. Abu kind of predicted this would happen. Like the Lord's going to deal with Nabal, and suddenly he does. So when we're married, we often say, till death do you part. That vow is, is good until the end of one of your lives. So at this point, Abigail becomes a free agent. David's first wife has broken vows, and she's been remarried to another man. So they're both now free and open and single. So after about 10 days, the Lord struck Nabal. He died. So when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who's pleaded the cause of my reproach from the hand of Nabal and has kept his servant from evil. Look, I didn't have to do anything. God just took care of it. Here's the thing that you can think about people you're mad at. If God wanted to end them right now, he could. Like, he controls every breath we take. That person's still breathing because God still thinks they have a chance at finding redemption and love and grace. So the idea that someone's still walking the earth is because God maybe has a plan for their life. And no matter how mad we are at them, wouldn't it be cool if they repented and became kingdom people? And there's still a shot at that. With Nabal, there's no chance. His heart went like stone, and God's take, he's ending him. 
This guy's done. But in doing that, God also opens the door. For the Lord has returned the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. So this is a, we got to have a thick skin for teachings like this. God does deal with sin. And sometimes that's hard for us to hear because we want to always think God's always love, 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 love. But God in his love also does justice for people that do evil. And that is part of how God loves his own children. Is that when people attack his children, he gets to be a defensive parent, a heavenly, a heavenly father. That's like, you're not going to do that to my children. And you're not going to treat them that way. So the Lord returns the wickedness of Nabal on his own head. Judgment comes early for Nabal. And David keeps his hands clean. And when David says, praise the Lord or blessed be the Lord, he's recognizing that God's had every part of this entire situation. It's all been at God's hand. The point here is God recognizes that God's been at work, or David recognizes God's been at work, and he gives God credit for it. I think this is part of what we're getting pretty good at is we're seeing that God actually operates in our life, and we recognize that, and we point it out. And David sent and proposed to Abigail. He didn't waste any time to take her as a wife. Like, I'm going to get that lady. He recognized all the qualities she had, and he realized she was a great match for him. She's poetic. She knows how to handle things. She knows how to make him a better man. She knows how to not only be a leader, but she knows how to be a servant. And just both of those qualities, what a gift. So he, he, he sends her to go be his wife. And when the servants of David had come to Abigail at Carmel, they spoke to her saying, David sent us to you to ask you to become his wife. You want to get married? Like the day after she, her husband dies. Then she arose, bowed her face to the earth, which is, she's, she's showing again difference there, and said, here is your maidservant, a servant to wash the feet of my servants of my Lord. Like I'm the lowest, I'll be the person that serves your servants. So Abigail rose in haste. Like there's not a lot of mourning on her part. This is almost like she got free from a bad situation, right? She's been living with this fool for years. And he dies, and a great and a good man says, I'd like you to be my wife. She moves in haste to go and be that wife and, and rode on a donkey attended by five of her maidens. To see that she has five maidens, she's, again, the head of a very wealthy household. right? She has resources of her own. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. So at the end of the day, this is like a how we met story. right? This is a grand romance or something but a very different kind of situation. But you see the qualities of a godly woman, you see some of the qualities of a godly man, and you see just how easy it can all be, right? You got a good connection, and he's like, come marry me. And she's like, sure. Gets up in haste, and they go get married. And I joke about it sometimes, but I joke about it because like, hey, it's real easy. You, you guys are both godly people. Let's get you married and start a family. Um, it should be a little more involved than that, right? And we get a summary of these situations, but clearly for David, he recognized she, she should be my wife. She's an amazing woman. And she's just got singled up, so let me be the first one you talk to. Isn't there a song about that? If he ever singles you up. Yeah? Okay, I'll stop. She maintains her humility even in this situation. So at the end of the day, think about this. Instead of Nabal just losing a few sheep, he loses everything, including his own life. So when she comes with her maidservants, it's strongly implied the house of Nabal just got put under David's new and growing kingdom. With these, each of these chapters, David keeps adding. He adds a prophet with Gad. He adds a high priest, Abiathar, who has the Urim and the Thummim and the Ephod. 
And then he added another 200. He added 400 men. Then he added another 200. Now he's got 600 men. Now he just added the house of Nabal. Thousands of sheep, thousands of cattle. Like suddenly this kingdom is growing fast. And then the house of Nabal would be all those shepherds and everything else. And they already get along because his men and, the, and Nabal's men were hanging out the whole year together and had a regard and respect for each other. And now they're all brothers and, and sisters in the same family. Like we're all in the same household now. So David grows. That's another aspect of this chapter. His kingdom just grew another notch. And David, verse 43, also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, so both of them were as wise. Oh, and then you get this. So David's nice. There's a lot of imagery for the, the Messiah. But then he does this stuff. And I don't know, I just hate verse 43. This would be such a cool chapter without it. And then he falls into the sin of polygamy which is going to be a curse for Solomon, his son. It's going to be a curse for the kings of Israel. None, no good is going to come out of this. Here he's got this wonderful godly woman, and his eye is still wandering to other women. So we're reminded David's not perfect. He's not the Messiah. He's setting up the throne of David that Jesus is going to sit on. But David's just a man, and he's a man with sin, and he makes these mistakes. We also get this other little addendum, verse 44, but Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Paddy, or Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galeum. So Saul had given his daughter away to another man. Think of how ugly that is compared to the Abigail we just met. Like, this girl, this daughter of Saul's just getting used and sent from man to man to man. Like, it's really icky and creepy. Um, but it adds this level of knowledge that David when he brought Abigail into his life, wasn't breaking his vows, they were already broken. So they're adding that addendum on here. And then they throw in verse 43, which, and then David breaks his vows by taking a second wife, and he commits adultery. So next, we're going to get um, another interaction with Saul, more training and learning for the future King David, and he continues to grow. In this particular instance, let's end on a good note, he had this opportunity to commit an amazing sin, and his, and his second wife comes in and stops him from doing it. And then he says, come be my wife, and they get married. Fair enough? So we'll just, we'll forget about verse 43 for now. And try to just think of David as doing a really good job in this chapter. Let's pray. Dear Lord and King, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blessing that it is. Lord, thank you that we can study your word and just think about our own lives and make connections. Uh, that we can see what godliness looks like and just recognize it. Um, we can see what, uh, what the idea of a godly woman and a godly man and how those play out in the Old Testament. We just love those images. Um, and Lord, help us to be godly men and women. Help us to be people that are honorable. Uh, help us be pe people that speak truth, that protect our households, uh, that honor our father and mother, that, that are looking for spouses, Lord, that are things that are a blessing and bring us closer to you. Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you in all things, just like David and Abigail. Uh, that this is all about you and all about being a blessing to the Lord. So help us to just keep those things focused. Lord, I pray tonight for marriages in our Bible study. Um, Lord, protect the marriages in our Bible study. Be the God that puts a hedge of protection around them. Lord, may um, our eyes be for our spouses and may our hearts be for them too, Lord, that we serve you together and that's what brings us closer as husband and wife. So I just pray that you guard over our marriages and protect them and be with them. In Jesus' name, amen.
If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.